You know, God's given us so much. He's given us a wonderful country. We live at a phenomenal time. There is so much that is just uh, so cool out there. Such neat things happening. I am... Uh, heard from Stuart Briscoe, a conversation he had with uh, an elderly man, man in his 80s, who was telling him that he's crossed this country twice. The first time by covered wagon, the second time by jet airplane. And the first time it took him about three months to get across, second time about six hours. You know, in his own lifetime, he had seen the, the, the changes in, in, in uh, transportation, just mind-boggling. Uh, you know, the reality is travel has become so fast. There is virtually no inhabited place on this globe that uh, if your schedules could line up correctly, that you couldn't get to in one day, 24 hours. I mean, this is mind-boggling. We have, as a result, you know, we have a, a world economy. The fruit is harvested in California one day and it's eaten in Germany the next day. Again, it is mind-boggling what is happening. The, the, the advances in technology and medicine, every other way. The, the advances in media. The other day I went to the Alan Jackson concert with my daughter. And uh, you know, he's up there singing. And behind him is this huge screen. And there's a, a, a picture of what he's doing on the screen. So you can see it even when you're on the other side of the pavilion. But also on another corner of the screen was a, a film of him growing up, you know, home movies. Another one, there was, there was some other activities going along that, that fit perfectly in time with the music. And there were about five or six things going on. I was astounded. It was just the, the, the advances in computer technology and media and communication are mind-boggling. And we start looking out there and seeing, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the Internet and the communications going out there, the advances in, in, in telephone technology, advances in medicine are... are are almost unbelievable. I heard the other day of a, a heart surgery done on a fetus. They, uh, using um, what was it, fiber optics and, and micro tools, they penetrated the amniotic sac, went in there, uh, didn't rupture the sac, they just went in, opened up the little chest, repaired the heart, closed him up, came out without any harm to the mother or the child. I honestly cannot conceive of that. That, that is amazing. How many people here have had heart surgeries recently that uh, 10 years ago would have been debilitating, would have been a, you know, three months of recovery, it would have been uh, uh, life-threatening? You know, in four or five days, you're feeling fine, walking around. It is amazing. There is astounding things happening out there. People, human beings, are doing incredible stuff. And with all of that wonderful stuff going on out there. We've got to ask, are we any happier? Are we any more fulfilled? Are we any better at relationships? See, there is wonderful things happening out there in our world, but what's happening in our hearts? Now, that really becomes the question that, that, that gives us perspective. Well, what's really important about what's going on? Well, in order to gain perspective, we've been going back to the beginning, back to the book of Genesis. We're going to be there again this morning. This morning we're going to be in the fourth chapter. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. This chapter you have the familiar story where Cain kills his brother Abel. That's how the, 
the chapter starts off. But then it goes on to talk about the origins of civilization, the origins of cities and, and of commerce and of, of arts and technology. It shows the relationship between these two stories. Now let's start with the story of Cain and Abel. This is really the important stuff. This is the heart stuff. Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Now, let's pause here just real briefly. Adam and Eve have a baby. They name him Cain, Cain. And what Eve says here is, is ambiguous in the Hebrew. It could possibly be translated, I have received a man, the Lord. As if she believed that this child was the Lord himself. Or it could also be translated more probably, I have received a man with the Lord. In other words, that the Lord gave him to her. Now, this doesn't mean that Eve didn't understand the relationship between sex and getting pregnant. It's simply that she saw conception still as a, as a divine act of God. But it, either way you take it, I think the point is clear. I agree with Martin Luther when he said, In this baby, Eve saw the fulfillment of the promise of the coming salvation by the blessed Savior. See, she thought that this baby was the descendant that God had promised that would, that would crush the head of the serpent. Remember when, when the serpent is cursed, God promises that one of, of Eve's descendants would completely destroy the work of Satan. Eve thought, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for that's going to put everything right, that's going to put our lives back together. This is the Savior. But Eve was sadly mistaken. And by the time that uh, Abel is born... She realized that. She sees in Cain that he's not the answer. He's just another problem. In fact, uh, the, the, the word, the, the name Abel, that she names her second son, means futility. And children aren't the answer. And Eve has to come to grips with it, has to realize that. Well, when they grew up, Cain became a farmer. Abel became a rancher. Probably more like a shepherd, but in Idaho it uh, fits better, a farmer against a rancher. It seems that both of these two had a relationship with God of sorts. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions for some of the firstborn, or from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. He was head was down like this and his lower lip was sticking out and his eyes were squinty. He was mad. Both Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord and the Lord is pleased with Abel's offering, but he is not with Cain's. Now, why not? Is it because God likes uh, ranchers better than farmers? I don't think so. Was it because God wanted an animal sacrifice, a meat sacrifice rather than a grain sacrifice? An argument could be made for that. But I don't think particularly from this passage. Uh, in fact, later on in, when the, the uh, offerings are described in the Old Testament, there are both grain offerings and, and meat offerings. So what's the issue? Look what it said here. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel <clears throat> brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Now Cain just brought some of the stuff he had gave it to the Lord. The, the language gives you a sense of carelessness. He just 
had some left over, he offers it to the Lord. But Abel, he offers the fat portions of the firstborn. And this is a way of saying he brings the best of the best. You see, in those days, the fat portions was were the best part, the most tender, the tastiest, the best cuts. It was it was a way of offering the very best. Now today we kind of have a thing about fat not being good, but Leviticus three sixteen says all fat is the Lord's. I have quoted that often to my wife as she is. Watched my waistline. I just say, hey, I'm just becoming more and more the Lord's. Uh, she doesn't buy it. <laughs> and I don't think God buys it, nor does he particularly appreciate the way I use scripture there. But the point is that the fat portions were the best. And, and Abel brings the best he has. And he brings the firstborn. He doesn't wait to see what he has left over. He, brings, he, he gives to God first before he figures the rest of it out. See, that was exactly the opposite of Cain. Had Cain been in the same business as Abel, it probably would have said, and Cain brought the hooves and the horns to the Lord and the stuff he had left over. See, it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the relationship. What you have in Cain is the first person to fake religion. And he, he keeps the form, but there's no substance. There is no relationship. He doesn't love God. He's simply trying to cover his bases, trying to do what religion requires to somehow protect himself in some way. But Abel, he loves the Lord. And he wants to express it. He wants to give God the best and the first. See, God isn't that worried about the particular sacrifice, whether it was meat or, or, or grain. What delighted the Lord is what that said about their relationship. What they brought expressed their relationship. Abel loved him. This wasn't ritual. This was a relationship. That's what pleased the Lord. Now let me get to meddling a little bit here. What does what you give to the Lord say about your relationship with Him? What about your time? Your thoughts? Do you look at your life and see if you have anything left over that you can give to God? Do you give Him the hooves and the horns of your time and energy? I don't want to be offensive here. I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I do want to help you get real. Get honest before God. You see, what we're talking about here is the relationship. What does what you give to Him say about your relationship with Him? Do you, do, do, do you uh, spend the time you need on, on making money and on your entertainments? And then if there's any time left over and it won't mess up your schedule too badly, you'll give a little to the Lord. Or, or do you view your whole life as belonging to Him? Your whole life is an, is an opportunity to respond to Him in love and obedience and everything you do at work and in your play. And, and, and you give a priority to looking for ministry opportunities where, where you ha- have the, the chance to, to, to clearly express that, that love, that, that desire to, to, to give back to Him with your time and your thoughts and your emotional energy. Now, one of the... Uh, clear barometers that God has given us in Scripture 
is how we use our money. And again, the question comes, do, do, do we decide what we're going to dedicate to the Lord by looking at uh, what's left after we've bought everything we want? D- do we give to him of our excess rather than our first fruit? People, this is terribly important. We live in a culture that's built on materialism uh, that, that entices us to spend absolutely everything we have, and in fact, more than we have, on our desires. It elevates our whims to the status of necessity. And that culture is choking the life out of us. We're so caught up in it, so addicted to it. We've become so fearful to try to keep up that we can't break out of it. And it's destroying us. And one of the disciplines that God has given us to free us, to protect us from all of this, is giving to him from our first fruits. Deciding first what we want to give to him and then letting him, watching him take care of our needs through the rest, through other ways. See, that's his desire to see us freed. By giving to him first, we, we find freedom from that fear and from that fearful pursuit of things that cannot satisfy. We find freedom from that grinding materialism of our culture. So he wants honesty in our relationship. He wants us to trust him so much, to love him so much that it's our heart's desire to give him as much as we possibly can figure out how to do. To, to be freed from that fear of giving. To, to express that love and that trust. Not, again, just to cover our bases, do the religious thing to make sure we're covered, but as an expression of our love and our trust. And if we don't give, it begs the question, do we really love Him? Or do we really trust Him? Now learn the freedom of loving God with your checkbook. This is Thanksgiving. You know, what better time than before the the glut of Christmas buying? What better time to stop and and to think through how you want to to express your love for your Lord through giving? How you want to express your freedom from materialism through giving? Now look at how Cain responded to God's feelings about his offering. Cain got angry. Cain had just expressed his disrespect for God, and God didn't do anything to him. God didn't react to him in an angry way. God simply, honestly expressed his feelings about it. And Cain is indignant. God should be happy with anything I give him. He's angry. But God is gentle and gracious. He engages Cain in conversation. He tries to draw him back. He says to Cain, verse 6, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. See, already Cain's emotions are are running wild. He's hurt. He's resentful. He's self-pitying. He's angry. And God just gently says, now think about it. Look at, why are you really angry? God doesn't say, oh, you shouldn't feel angry. doesn't tell him not to feel that. He just says, look at that anger. Where's it really coming from? 
What does that really tell you about the choices that you've been making? You see, the, the, the key at those times of hurt and emotion is, is to honestly look at what we're feeling. To look at ourselves. See what we may need to repent of. And then turn and do the right thing. In spite of those feelings. You see, <clears throat> the, the, the remedy is not to deny the feelings. Nor is it, though, to just be immersed in them and focused on them. Wait for them to change. Feelings are, are, are just information for us to analyze, to look at, to understand. But then God's call on us in the midst of those feelings is to do the right thing. Come to Him. Say, what's going on here, God? What's happening inside of me? And God, what is the right thing to do? Give me the strength to do the right thing. And then simply do the right thing. I'm told if you do, you'll be lifted up. Now that's what the, that word there, uh, um, translated um, accepted, really means. It means to lift up. You'll be lifted up in your countenance. You'll be lifted up in your spirit and in your emotion. But not by waiting for those emotions to change, but by honestly engaging with God and then doing the right thing. That's the, 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 the key to overcoming negative emotion. Choose with God to do the right thing. Now, if you don't, sin will get you. It'll grab you. And you'll end up doing things you never thought you could do, that you would ever do. It'll, it'll control you. It'll grab you. And you'll end up hurting someone. And some of you resent your spouses. Some of you resent your wives. If you're honest, you know you're not treating her kindly, respectfully. But you can't seem to stop. Why not? Because you refuse to face yourself. You refuse to look at the choices you've been making and what's going on to see if there's something there you need to repent of. Let me appeal to you. Sit down with God. Discover what it is. Accept His forgiveness. And then do the right thing. If you do, you'll discover an amazing freedom to love your wife and an amazing delight in loving her. It will lift you up. But after you've taken that step of faith in the midst of those emotions, choosing with God, before God, to do the right thing. Again, if you don't, you'll just get more miserable and meaner, and you'll end up destroying the things that are most precious to you. Look at what Cain did. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? He went out in the field, killed his brother. And when God called him on it, he lied. He, he responded resentfully. How dare you even ask that, God? I don't know where he is. It's not my day to watch him. And it just goes deeper and deeper. Sin always drags us deeper and deeper like quicksand. And again, God engages him. 
God gives him opportunity after opportunity to stop and to turn and to repent, but he won't. God tells him that the ground won't support him any longer. Now, the ground was cursed because of Adam's sin, but apparently Cain was making a living by the sweat of his brow, but God says, no more. From now on, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Sin makes us restless. We've got this aching drive to to try to find satisfaction that we can never find. It keeps us looking, keeps us surfing, keeps us searching. Cain's response isn't repentance. He just feels sorry for himself. He starts crying and he says to God, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. You know, if I was God, I would have said, Oh, you poor baby, get out of here. I mean, how does God not just explode with anger at at this self-absorbed fool? And then I play back a few tapes of my own whining, especially at those times when I'm hurting because of my own foolishness. And I am grateful for God's patience. You know, when our sin is exposed, when it's no longer able to be something we pretend isn't there or we justify, uh, maybe it's some dramatic sin like adultery or, or tax evasion or embezzlement, or maybe it's just a lie or an act of selfishness that we can't conceal any longer. We can't blame on somebody else. When it's exposed and we can't hide it anymore, the self-pity that we were using to justify our behavior in the first place just takes on enormous proportion. It gets huge, just spills out. Cain isn't weeping for his brother Abel. He's not weeping for his parents or his siblings who lost Abel. He's weeping for himself and how hard it is on him. How like us. But again, God deals graciously. He tells Cain that uh, he's going to put the word out so that uh, anyone who uh, kills Cain... God will make sure that they're punished seven times over. And then he gives Cain a sign to to comfort him, to to put him at ease. Now, we have no clue, not the slightest idea what this sign was. And if it weren't for the fact that there was some, there's there's one idea out there circulating that is absolutely absurd. I wouldn't take the time to even talk about this. But sadly, there are some foolish, hateful people who teach that the sign of Cain, the mark of Cain, was black skin. How absolutely absurd. First of all, for all we know, everyone had black skin back then. It wasn't until our pigmentation became defective that, it, uh, that there may have been anything else. We don't know. But second, the races weren't differentiated until much later, after the flood. And third, this is simply a pitiful attempt to twist God's word to justify sinful racism. There is absolutely no biblical basis for racism in any form. Racism of any kind is abhorrent to our creator. We need to put that idea permanently to rest. Now what we have in the rest of the chapter here is a description of where things went from there. Cain's rebellion, his false, his faking of religion, his resistance to God, then just spreads out from him to his descendants. 
and they go and they express that in their behavior and their attitudes. But the startling thing is that what uh, this passage tells us is that cities and, and, and commerce and arts and technology all came from the sinful line of Cain. This is surprising stuff. And some of you are saying, I knew it all along. Civilization is, is evil and we should bail out of it, kind of be like the Amish. Well, I, I'm not really sure that's what God's trying to tell us here. Down in verse 16, we're told that Cain walked out of the presence of God. He walked away, didn't look back. He continued to keep his heart hard. He never softened after God appealed and was so gracious, so generous to him. His heart never softened. Perhaps in an attempt to defy what God said would happen, that he'd be a wanderer on the earth, he built a city. Now, considering how long people lived back then, 800, 900 years even, and, and how long uh, they could uh, produce children, the fact is that uh, in all likelihood, the population was in the millions by this time. So Cain built a city. That's the, the important point here. And one of his descendants man by the name of Lamech, seems to have led open rebellion against God. In fact, Jewish tradition is that Lamech defied God's warning and killed Cain, that that's how Cain died, that Lamech killed his, uh, his uh, ancestor Cain. But we know he defied God's plan for marriage. He was the first polygamist. He married two wives. Verse 19, Lamech married two women, one named Ada, the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Now, the livestock here was camels and donkeys, and they uh, developed tents. Why? To be able to move from one settlement to the other, to buy things here, take them there, and sell them, to take news of, of this invention and this advance from one place to another. This is the origins of commerce. Verse uh, 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Jubal's the father of music and the arts. Verse 22, Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain was the father of technology, of metallurgy, of, of tool making, perhaps even of weaponry. Again, what you have here are the beginnings of what we call civilization, of commerce, of arts, of, of technology. And the Bible intentionally demonstrates that these all come from the rebellious line of Cain. Now, what's the point? Is the point that, uh, that we should despise business, the arts, and, and uh, technology, that we should... Uh, bail out of, of, of culture and society and view cities as evil, get away from all of this stuff, run away, hide from it. I don't think that's God's point. It's not what he's trying to say. This isn't saying that business is in, of, is in and of itself evil or that, that the arts are in and of themselves evil or that, that technology is in and of itself evil. But we have to understand that these things are used and a lot of the impetus behind them is often evil. People use civilization 
in their efforts to insulate themselves from God. They use business and commerce in, as, a, as a way of, of gaining their, their sense of significance apart from God, as a way of gaining the, the, their, their own livelihood so that they can continue to live in defiance of God. They use arts and music to, to soothe their souls apart from God and to express their passions apart from God. They use technology to, 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 to assume for themselves the, the, the uh, prerogatives and, and the accoutrements of deity, to be God-like themselves, to, to convince themselves that they don't need God, that they can do whatever they want for themselves and by themselves. So that's what civilization has been used for. But that isn't the necessary use of civilization, of all of these wonderful things that we see around us. In fact, throughout the rest of Scripture, we see God's people taking what others use for rebellion and using them for His service. Abraham was a caravanner. He used that business for God's glory. David was a musician. He used his poetry, his music to glorify God. The technology of the day was used to build and beautify the temple. The, the Roman Empire, that civilization was used by the apostles as the rail system to get the gospel to the farthest ends of the earth. So you see these things being transformed, turned in, in, to the service of God, to, to be used for His glory. The point isn't that we should shun civilization, that we should despise it and hate it. Again, the wonderful things that we see around us can become tools in our hands to do what God has called us to do, to love others, to, to help them physically, with food, with medical needs. They become tools in our hands to accomplish the other purpose, to communicate the gospel to millions, to teach people about Jesus. You see, that's the design. That's what God generously gives them to us for. point that's being made is not that civilization is something we should run from. The real contrast is what's made clear in the last two verses. Verse 25 and 26. He says, Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. See, what's being contrasted here is the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And the distinction, the difference, is that the line of Cain, the descendants of Cain, they uh, looked to themselves to take care of themselves. They lived in rebellion and resistance to God. Their hope was in what they could do, what they could put together. But the line of Cain, the descendants of Cain, they were in relationship with him. They put their hope in him. And again, as we look around in our world, see all of the incredibly neat stuff that's happened, wonderful stuff, stuff that, that, that we should be excited about. We need to be careful to, to not put our hope in these things. To not go the way the world goes and use these to inflate our sense of our own importance. We can use these things for God's purposes to love people. 
But we can never look to these things to find our peace, to find our security in business, to find our significance in what the, what the uh, wonderful things that technology produces. That's the way the people in the world, the people around us, that's where they find their peace, their significance, their hope. As a result, they're hurting, they're empty, they're hollow. They've missed the important stuff. Like the descendants of Cain, they try to control their world and their environment and they can't control their hearts. Ultimately, what matters is not what's happening out there, but what's happening in here. As a result, the fact is, no matter what generation you live in, whether you're traveling by covered wagons or by jet airplanes, no matter what the technology available, you know, whether you're, you're, you're of the baby boomer generation or, or the buster generation or whatever they call every generation, it doesn't ultimately matter. What matters is the heart. And the gospel is, the simple gospel is still relevant. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the marvels that we see around us. We don't want to run from them and be suspicious of them. But thank you that we can understand. We understand perspective that these things can so easily seduce people into to resisting you, to editing you out of their lives, to, to putting their hope things other than you. And as a result... Their hearts ache. They're empty. They're restless wanderers. Lord, we want to use these things for your glory. We want to, to, to embrace them for your glory. But our hope is always in you. May we constantly, consistently call on your name. Lord, we worship you. We want to give you thanks. We want to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.